Uh, oh, it's got to hurt. Uh, welcome to church. I'm Mark, uh, playing around on shakers and IT this morning. And, uh, and now I get to, to think together with you about a really super important topic. And the topic is this. Um, the question is this, how, how do I get to live, how do you get to live uh, a truly great life or a good life? Um, our mission as a church is to help people connect with God and live great lives. The question is, what does a great life look like? How do we get there? Um, we, all, we all live out an answer to that question, whether we're conscious about it or not. All of us are trying to live in such a way that maximizes our happiness, our impact on the world, our glory, whatever it is. Like we all do it. No one sets out in life to go, I'm just going to be a miserable human being, live a miserable life, and then die. But we don't often think in our culture about what, what are the decisions and the choices we're making uh, and what is a good life and how do I get there? So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to think a, a whole bunch about that. And uh, we're going to do it from 2 Corinthians. Um, and it's chock-a-block full of uh, amazing content. And here's, here's a head, an outline of where we're going. Um, I'll, we're, going to, it's going to have, we're going to have roughly speaking uh, three points. May change a bit as we go. Um, and uh, we're going to talk about... The key to a great life is first uh, your identity, who or what you identify as, how you understand yourself in the world. Uh, the second thing we're going to think a bit about is, uh, following on from this, is um, what are the choices that you and I make given that identity and given the life that we live? And then the third thing we're going to look at is, well, what's the, what's the shape of the life that flows from that? What are the outcomes? So the identity, choices, and outcomes. It's three points. Each point has multiple subpoints, but we won't go into those now. Uh, we'll get there in time. The first question is this. Um, uh, what, what is your identity? That matters a lot. We live in an era, don't we, where... Um, Everything is about your identity. So how do you understand yourself? Who are you? So uh, think about yourself for a moment. If someone said, uh, um, describe yourself, what would you say? Describe, you know, describe yourself. I guess you'd say, depends in what context. If it was on my uh, LinkedIn profile, it could be different to my Tinder, I mean, my Insta profile. Yeah, it depends. But, but is there a stable you? So uh, you might say, uh, so if it was me, I'd say, well, who am I? Well, I'm, I'm the child of my parents. So I'm a, a German, Jewish, Irish, Catholic, white, African who's married. So that covers, you know, growing up in Africa. So you, you, you talk about your identity in the past and who you're connected to. And then you might talk about your current family. And while well, I'm married to so-and-so, I do this, I do that, that, that. And then, of course, everyone to identify, to, to figure out who you are, will want to know what you do for work. Well, okay, so what do you do for work? My answer generally is as little as possible. Um, 
I do, you know, and then you go, oh, okay. Uh, what do you like? And, and that's how we construct. And our identities vary and, and so on. I want to suggest to you a very interesting and provocative hypothesis. It's not that provocative, really. If you want to live a really great life spiritually from the point of view of God, the key is, under, is developing and shaping and understanding as uh, a servant or slave of God. See, that's, that's how Paul starts this passage, right? He, he starts off by going, hey, we put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. So it seems like you can live a suboptimal life that discredits you and your faith and your ministry. That, that seems to be true. And we all go, yeah, yeah, we can all stuff it up. But then when he says, rather as servants of God or... Um, uh, that that word that that word here doulos can also mean slave of God. Um, that's everything in the rest of this text about living a great life flows from that. I've been beating this drum as long as I've been teaching the Bible that we're fundamentally servants or slaves of God. Let me tell you, it's a seriously unpopular way to think of ourselves. <laughs> I remember uh, many years ago, we were, we were in, I was pastoring a church in Canada, and there was a very, uh, a very lovely man who was very bright, thoughtful, um, you know, senior executive, probably in his mid-50s at this point. And every time I would mention the idea of that we're a slave of Christ or we're a servant, he would come to me after church and he'd say, Mark. I just think you shouldn't use that language. Like slavery is so negative and, and being a servant is so negative and you're a white African and it just, it's even worse when you say it. And I'd go, yeah, I know. I know it's so countercultural to be a servant of someone else because we live in a culture where, where we are taught from the moment of birth that to live a good life, you have to be independent. You have to construct your own identity. You have to succeed. You, and, and slavery is terrible and serving someone else is terrible. What you want to do is be the boss, particularly in this area. You send your kids to school and what gets valued most? You know, we give people leadership positions in schools and leadership positions at university. We aspire to leadership positions in our workplace. No one gives awards for being great followers. No one gives awards for being like, who's the best servant in our class today? That doesn't happen, does it? I, uh, I taught a program at a university a few years ago on servant leadership. And, uh, and the course got cancelled by the rest of the faculty because they uh, very aggressively said, servant leadership has been discredited and no one wants to hear about it anymore. I'm like, oh, okay. Like 10 years on, I want to say to them, how's that working for you? So um, here's the thing, of course, which no one tells you. We're all servants of someone or something, aren't we? You might think you're going to be the boss and you're going to be in charge, but you're all serving someone. 
as Bob Dylan, the great theologian of the 20th century, said uh, in one of the best albums of the 20th century, Slow Train Coming, uh, you've got to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you've got to serve somebody. You might be serving money, you might be serving status, you might be serving power, you might be serving all kinds, you've got to serve somebody. The question is, who are you going to serve? Now, of course, you might say, well, I want to serve myself. But if you're that crass and honest and you go, well, actually, my goal in life is to be self-serving, we all know, oh, actually, that's, uh, you know, don't be so crass about it. You've got to dress it up in something else. Serve yourself. Well, how's that going for you? I mean, what's your idea? Now, so, so you see, spiritually, and again, I'm not sure where you all are on, the spiritual, on your spiritual journey and your understanding of Christianity and so on, but, but at the very heart of Christianity is the idea that the fulfillment of our humanity is to be a servant. In the same way that Jesus was a servant. That's the radical thing. God himself came into this world, the Bible says, not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark 10, verse 45. So God himself has the nature of a servant. And he comes and he says, that's, if you want true greatness, understand that true greatness is found in service. you understand that about yourself that's who you are that's what defines you and everything else you do in your life flow i'm a servant of god i'm a slave that's actually even to make it even more radical to be a slave means to belong to god i don't set any boundaries around what god asks of me um now uh, hands up on a scale of one to ten where one is I'm entirely self-serving. And 10 is Jesus and me, we're like this in being servants of God. We're perfect God servants. One self-serving, 10 perfectly God serving. Where would you put yourself on that scale? And don't yell it out. Oh, you could. Was that a nine, Jen? <laughs> Four, thanks for your honesty. Yeah, uh, interesting, isn't it? Fours, well, yeah, there's a few fours. I, you know, um, of course, I used to be a four. <laughs> now I'm probably a three. No, I need, well, because here's the thing, even if you're a super religious person, you mean, it, like, it's a battle, isn't it? Like, you go, oh, I want to serve God. Yeah, I want to, I, I want to. I kind of think I know it's true, but, oh, man, but can I trust God? Like, so here's, the, here's what we tell ourselves. Okay, so I'm struggling. I know I should serve God, but I want to serve myself, but I want to serve God, but I want to serve myself, but I want to serve God. But, but if I serve God, then bad things might happen to me. I might be miserable, right? So then we tell ourselves, oh, but of course that won't happen. Because guess what? If you really serve God, if you've got real faith, then God will bless you and you will have a great life, won't you? Like if you just believe and you yield and you submit and you tithe, 
then God will bless you, won't he? So come on. You can't go wrong with trusting God. It's going to be great, isn't it? Can I get an amen to that? You're all sitting with your arms crossed going, hmm, hmm. Where's he going with this? Have I got the right church here this morning? Look, uh, in our heart of hearts, what we want to do is make a deal with God. If I serve you, you'll serve me. And you'll serve me by giving me an easy life and an affluent life, and a pain-free life. And, I, and at one level, that's, a, that, that's, a, that's sort of true. God will bless you. And you will have that kind of life, just maybe not now. And I wish I could say to you, I wish, I wish, I wish I could say to you, if you and I yield our lives to God and become servants of God, then our lives will just be free of pain and suffering and will be rich and prosperous. And I wish I could say that. And I wish it were true. But it's not. Because look at what happens. Look at what Paul says. Um, sorry, I mucked up the... Um, look at what he says. He says, I'm a servant of God, and I commend myself in every way, uh, in, in affluence, in harbor views, in uh, incredibly good health in a fully funded superannuation and retirement, in wonderful overseas holidays, in a great, intimate, passionate, long-lasting marriage, in really obedient, helpful, flourishing kids who, who never cause any problems, uh, in no setbacks emotionally, in perfect mental health. These are the ways that I commend myself, the Apostle Paul says, doesn't he? And he goes... In great endurance, which implies life's hard. In troubles, hardships, and distresses. In beatings, imprisonments, in riot, in hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger. We were talking about this in our small group on Thursday night. And a member of our group who shall remain nameless, Margot, made the point. Um, it's, not a, it's not a great pitch for the Christian life, is it? It isn't. Like, actually, here's the deal, dear friends. If you're serious about being a servant of God, there is no guarantee you'll have a life of personal peace and affluence. In fact, you may well have a life that is full of suffering and hardship. Uh, just go talk to anyone who's tried to be a follower of Jesus in northern Nigeria or most of the Middle East or in the Ukraine or in Russia today, like being an authentic servant of God, disentangling your faith in Jesus from the nationalism that is sweeping up your country and standing for truth. That's tough. It's not, this is the kind of life you get to live. And here's the thing for you. If you commit yourself to Jesus, and I know many of you are, when you start suffering, when your health goes and your employment goes and your mental health goes and your kids are annoying and your partner's annoying and you're annoying and church is annoying and everyone's disappointing and life just feels like it sucks, it's easy to think, oh, there's something wrong with me. My faith is deficient. What have I done wrong, Lord? I'm like, you've done nothing. Well, actually, you may have done a lot wrong. But that's not why life's hard. Life's hard because life's hard. This side of heaven. And what matters is how you live in the middle of the hardness of life. 
And I wish I could say, follow Jesus and everything will be great. And actually it will. But it might take 60 or 70 years and a horrible, brutal death on your part to get to the great. Now, that's not to say, like I look at us here, most of us are having lives that are of unparalleled affluence and health in human history. So at one level, I say to myself, Mark, most of what I go through is entirely first world problems. So suck it up, buttercup, and get on with life. Like that's how I speak to <laughs> how I speak to myself a lot of the time. But actually, when you really suffer, it's easy to question God and go, oh, something I've done wrong. Is my faith deficient? But I thought if I followed Jesus, my life would work. And you go, no, 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 no. It is and it will. And greatness in life, that a truly great Christian life does not depend on the circumstances and what happens to you externally. It depends entirely on our second point. On the choices we make. Like it's how you choose to respond, isn't it? Um, look at what he says. Uh, so he faces this and then he says, how has he commended himself? He's commended himself in purity, understanding, patience, and kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in sincere love, in truthful speech, in the power of God. Those are the choices that he makes. You go, ah. So here's the thing. Um, look at those, look at that list and think about your life. Think about the week that's about to hit you and go, hmm, when I go to work tomorrow, am I going to go in purity? That is, let me think about what purity means. Am I going to go wholly devoted to God? Am I going to avoid moral and financial compromise? Am I going to go with patience and kindness? I just think, like, in when you, like when you look at what Paul's gone through here, one of the ways, what he's chosen to do in the midst of all of that is to be patient and kind. Our world, gosh, our world lacks patience and kindness, doesn't it? Um, it's going to go in, uh, in the Holy Spirit. That is the energy that comes from God, not in your own energy, right? He's going to come go in sincere love. Now, what's the opposite of sincere love, do you reckon? What would be the opposite of sincere love? Insincere love? A slightly stronger word than insincere? Hypocritical, fake love. But I like hypocritical love. Like... Uh, there's a yeah. There's a there's a whole broad swathe of literature and personal development stuff that you can learn and read that will get you to be able to convince others that you care for them <laughs> and behave in such a way as though you do. And the Bible says, if you want to be a, live a really great life, what matters is not that you appear to care for people, while in your heart of hearts you're actually angry and bitter and hate them and want to destroy them. And your appearance of care is really just a corporate ploy to advance your career or manipulate someone. It says what the Bible wants is like from the inside out, you actually want what's good for them. Sincere love. Truthful speech. Oh. 
<laughs> We've got an election coming up. Just, just for imagine how our politics would go if our parliament and our politicians and everyone who talked about them only ever said the truth. Like across all, like, wouldn't that be great? Okay, guys, I'm the prime minister, but like, I don't really have a clue what's going on and I'm really powerless and I'm just trying to do my best and we're all trying to do our best. So come on. I don't have to pretend. We do this dance of, of lies with each other and our leaders that we've got to pretend the leader should know everything. And whenever, whenever anyone in politics stuffs up, you go, oh, look, that terrible human being. And, and you go, well, you try doing it. And forget the whole dance of trying to tell everyone you know everything and you're perfect and your opponent is awful and terrible. No, I, I don't know. I mean, I would have a spectacularly short career in politics. I mean, like, I don't know. Like, I'm trying to make it work. And I'm a mess and you're a mess. And I think I've got some good ideas, but they may not work. So how about giving it a go, guys? You know, let's, let's build some nuclear submarines. Maybe it'll work or maybe it won't. <laughs> Probably wouldn't get elected. Truthful speech. And then in the power of God, I love this. I said this last week or two weeks ago. Next, next term after Easter, we're going to do a whole lot of thinking about the energy and the power and the presence of God. How does God actually work in us? It's been a prayer of mine for years now to say, Lord, I want in my life a spiritual power. Our world is, is very obsessed with accumulating kind of worldly power. I want to get people to do what I want them to do. But I think the power of God is, is, is not when I get you to do what I want you to do, but when God uses me to open your heart to himself to set you free from your hangups and your hurts and your addictions. And, and I'm just a vessel. I'm an instrument in that. But the real power is God. Because you and I know we actually have no power over anyone else. We, we struggle to have power over ourselves and sort ourselves out. But this is the power of God, right? So that's it. Anyway, power. Uh, truthful speech, power of God, the weapons of righteousness. So that's it. And then, so you, you, have, you have your, and you make those choices. Um, I want to, it's, you have choices in life. The Bible teaches radical, radical human responsibility. You and I only ever do what we actually want to do. It's, it's a choice. It's radical, right? Like, ah... Uh, you may have reasons and constraints, but we are free. This is, the, this is the glory and the terror of being made in the image of God, the dignity of our humanity that we choose. You and I are not victims. I mean, we may be victims of all kinds of things, but you choose. What are you going to choose tomorrow when you go to work? What are you going to choose tomorrow when you go to school? What are you going to choose after church? What are you going to choose this afternoon? And uh, the third point, and I've slightly missed it up, look at the outcomes. Um, and here we get to um, an amazing little passage. Uh, he is <laughs> one outcome. Paul is very, very seriously misunderstood. 
he has glory and dishonor in an honor-shame culture. Sometimes things go incredibly well for him as he lives this way, and sometimes it's a cultural disaster. He has bad report and good report, so people misunderstand him and misreport what he has to say. That is extraordinarily painful. Have you ever had people say stuff about you that's not true and dishonor your name and impugn your motives and tell others about it? And, I mean, it's occasionally happened to me. It's horrible. And that happens to Paul. He's doing his best. He's living through beatings and hardships. He's doing all, making all these good choices and still people misunderstanding and misreport him and don't show him any grace and make, try to make his life hard. Bad report. He's genuine, but he's regarded as an imposter. People misunderstand him. They think he's faking it because how can you possibly live like that? And they cancel him. This is the reverse of original cancel culture, known yet regarded as unknown. Following Jesus uh, can be a great recipe to being marginalized and excluded from mainstream culture. It was true in Paul's day. It's probably increasingly true in our day. Ugh. Try being an authentic follower of Jesus in Yemen right now. Or in Moscow. It's hard, right? Or in Sydney. cancelled, unknown. It's weird. People are drawn to the Christian life of humility and service and so on. But actually, when they encounter people who take Jesus extremely seriously, they don't really know how to handle Christians and some of our views. So that's, you're misunderstood, but look what happens. He has a life that is characterized in the long term by three things, life, joy, and abundance. So here's where we get to a full-on prosperity sermon. Look at it. This is what Paul says. You do all of that, and here's the paradox of the Christian life. These two things go together. He's dying, yet we live on. He's dying to self. He's dying to all the, to his cultural advancement. He says, but we live on. We keep on going. We're beaten and yet not killed. God has a plan. And as long as you and I draw breath, God has a plan for our lives. No matter what the world does, no matter how horrible and awful it is, no matter how often we get the snot beaten out of us by ourselves, by those we love, by those around us, by our culture, by life itself, God has a plan and we're still alive and we're here to serve while we're still alive. And then he says, verse 10, and if you were to memorize any verse, and if you were to have this as a vision for your life, and if you were to think about what a truly great life consists of, I can't think of a better verse than this. If I was into uh, tattoos, we, we could have a little tattoo parlor set up here. And as a, as a response to the sermon this morning, you'd, we'd, you'd come down and we'd tattoo this verse on everyone. It's, this is part of the church. You've got to have this verse tattooed on you. Not that we're a cult or anything, but... Um, because it's so powerful. Look, so this is it. Sorrowful because life is hard. All the stuff Paul's gone through is hard. Yes, it's hard. Like, like I, I just, it's life is really, 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 really hard. There are lots of reasons to be incredibly sad and to grieve. It just is. yet always rejoicing. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. You look at the reality the way it is, 
And then you, how do you, where do you find joy like that? Well, in a God who lived and died and rose again and gives us his spirit and says to us, I am with you in the suffering. And if you walk with me through the sorrow, on the other side of the sorrow lies the glory. On the other side of Good Friday lies Easter Sunday. On the other side of death lies resurrection. And Paul will go on and say that this world is the sorrows and the hardships of this world are light and momentary compared to the glory that is to come. So we can taste that. We can experience that. Because when I look at the world, when I look at you, with all your disappointing, annoying sin, and when I look at me with all my disappointing and annoying sin, and when I look at the world with all its disappointment and annoyance and sin and death and chaos and decay, I, I don't, this is not all there is. I don't just see that. I see glory. I see the King of Kings ruling in our lives, breathing resurrection hope into us. I see the fact that the world is going to be made new. God is going to heal everything. And he started that work already in me and in you and in us and in this world. And so I can find joy. I can find joy because God loves me and he loves you. And death's not the end and suffering's not the end and disappointment's not the end. Love wins. Life triumphs over death. So sorrow, get full of joy. And I think those two have to go together. Yes. <sighs> Poor yet making many rich. Mate, mostly in the world. We we're quite happy to get rich by making others poor. The Christian life, like if you really want a great life, what you should value is how you enrich the lives of others around you. Your own personal status and bank balance and accomplishments at one level are irrelevant from God's point of view. We make a, one person, I remember reading this quote years ago, we make a living by what we get, we make a life by what we give. We make a living by what we get, we make a life by what we give. So what matters is have you enriched others around you? That's like, that's a pretty cool way to think about yourself, isn't it? Like, that's, you see, it takes the focus off your own accumulation and you go, yeah, the Apostle Paul was poor. Like he'd had a lot and, and there's no, nothing wrong with having lots of money uh, financially, being blessed with all kinds of things. But actually, if you want to live a really great life, you need to go, okay, as a servant of Jesus, I'm going to use my resources to enrich others that they can get to know Jesus. They can get to connect with God. They can have a roof over their heads. They can find peace and security in a functioning justice system. I don't know. Start focusing on that. And then you think, well, hang on, that's going to make, leave me with nothing. And that's exactly what Paul says. He says, having nothing and yet possessing everything. Huh. And that's a pretty, like you and I possess everything. Uh, and, and at one level, look, the truth of the matter is we actually have nothing in this life. Everything that we have at the moment, we only have temporarily, and it's illusion that it really defines us and we can hold on to it. Your health is diminishing. 
You're never going to be as healthy as you were half an hour ago. You're never going to the last half an hour back. You will when you, you, you know, as the Bible says, you, you, naked you come into the world and naked you'll leave the world. Right? You start the world utterly dependent on one person. And then you accumulate these friends and this network and a big LinkedIn connection. And it's all wonderful. But, you know, as we age, the, the network gets smaller and smaller. And typically for most of us, our final years and months are spent being cared for by one or two people. And then we die alone. We have nothing. It's Paul's just acknowledging what's true. But then he says, yet we have everything. We possess everything. Uh, a psychologist, Arch Hart, once said, commenting on Philippians, he said, everything in life is loss. Oh, but the more I go on, the more I sense that everything in life is loss. The only thing I gain in life is Christ, but in him I gain everything. Everything. So a truly great life is to be a servant of God because in following Jesus, you have everything. That's, that's, that's it. That's like when, when Christ is so big for us and so central for us and fills our moral and personal vision of who we are, then you start to live a life that truly is life, a life that the grave won't end, a life full of joy, even in the midst of sorrow, and a life of eternal abundance. <sighs> easy, isn't it? <laughs> no, it's hard to live this way, but it's good. That's why we need each other to help each other on this path. That's why we need the help of God. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, thank you for this text, for speaking. I don't know if you've spoken to anyone else in this room, but gosh, Lord, you sp you've spoken to me through this, this week, this morning, and over so many years. And I pray for our church that we will be a community of life, of joy and abundance, even while we live in sorrow, while we may be materially poor, and while ultimately we have nothing, yet like Paul, we'll possess everything. I pray you'll make us a church that makes many rich, and that our joy will be overflowing. So help us, Lord, this morning to surrender to you to yield to you as our master and our king and our friend. Amen. We're going to sing again. Thanks, guys. It's a wonderful song we're going to sing in response to this. Please stand and join us. love my deep and boundless peace to the
my side. 